Hey, this is Kyle Eidelman from Southeast Christian Church, and I'm going to thank you for listening to the message today. As we open up the scriptures together, I pray that this message inspires you, challenges you, and is the right word at just the right time in your life. Enjoy the message. Let me take you back to a place maybe you don't want to go. Uh, Some of you probably do. It's high school. Maybe for you it was uh, the best of times. Like it just hasn't gotten much better. Uh, For others of you, you just would never want to go back. For me, it was the early 90s. I remember it somewhat nostalgically, like uh, Swatch Watch on one wrist. Some of you were Swatch Watch wearers. Some of you wore more than one Swatch Watch at the same time. Just go ahead and raise your hand. You know who you are. Uh, If I were honest, I would say I was walking into school, wearing my Swatch Watch and listening to little LL Cool J on my Sony Discman. (laughs) Making fun of some of the kids outside playing hacky sack in the parking lot. Now we didn't have uh, cell phones and social media back then, but pretty close. You know, we had trapper keepers and uh, kept us organized and on task. You remember the trapper keepers? And the slap bracelets. They make a little bit of a comeback, but that's sort of how we showed our friendships back then, slap bracelets, kind of like social media, but a lot's changed. My point would be a lot's changed in high school. I think though, there's probably one thing that has remained consistent and it doesn't really matter when you went to high school. It's that uh, feeling that you would get when you would walk into class and the teacher starts handing out papers and says, I hope you're ready because this is a test. There's something about that phrase, this is a test, that would, uh, ah, would just create this sinking feeling where you know you're not ready. And maybe you forgot it was today, or maybe you were gonna study longer and you never got around to it, but when you hear the words, this is a test, you sit up a little bit straighter, you lean in a little bit more, you, you maybe pray a prayer, God, please give me supernatural revelation. Please please help me to somehow know the right answers. Something about the phrase, this is a test that causes us to pay attention. And and so what I wanna do in the next few minutes is talk to you about how the Bible talks about money. It's usually as a test. When you hear money talked about in scripture, usually it's a test. Now, Carl talked about this last week, but I just wanna reiterate it. It's not a test of salvation, so please don't go there with this. Right, like it's not a test of God's grace and forgiveness in your life. You're not somehow earning that by the way you manage your money. When when you get to heaven, you don't turn in your portfolio and they don't check your credit score based upon that. You get it. Like that's not what we mean when we say test. When the Bible talks about money, it's a test of trust. It's a test of affection. It is a test of gratitude. The Bible puts it this way, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you wanna know what matters to someone and what's really important to them, you look at their money. You don't necessarily listen to what they say. You you look at their money. Money tells the story of what we value most, so money is a test. I think this is why Jesus talks so much about it. If you just run the numbers on this, Jesus talked more about money than he talked about heaven and hell and prayer. Like this was one of his favorite subjects because money tells the story of our hearts. Money would be portrayed in scripture as God's chief competition because money will want to do for us what only God can do for us. Money wants to give you satisfaction and significance and money you can try to find your identity 
And, and God wants to do all those things for us. So, so there's a lot about money in the Bible, and oftentimes money is a test. Specifically, when you see the word tithe, it means test. It means tenth. And when you see 10 in scripture, it's almost always connected to, to testing. Carl touched on it last week, just this biblical principle of a tithe. That's, it was established before the law, and then it was also uh, reinforced after the law with Jesus in Matthew 23. But, but tithe means 10th, and 10th in scripture almost always means this is a test. How many plagues were there? 10 plagues. 10 tests of Pharaoh's heart. How many commandments? 10 commandments, 10 tests of obedience. How many times did God test Israel when they were wandering through the wilderness? 10 times. How many times did God test Jacob's heart by changing his wages when he was working for his uncle Laban? 10, 10 times. How many times was Daniel tested in Daniel chapter one? 10. Revelation chapter two, verse 10 speaks of 10 days of testing. And so throughout the Bible, when you see the number 10, you can say to yourself, oh, this is a test. This is a test. And so tithing is a test of trust. It's a test of affection. It's a test of gratitude. I especially want to focus in on that on this Thanksgiving weekend. It's just the connection between gratitude and generosity and how closely those two things go together. The Bible says in Psalm 50, verse 14, give an offering to show thanks to God. Be generous as a way to express your gratitude. And we understand, I think, culturally, how those things go together. If we wanna express gratitude to someone, we often do that through giving a gift or, or giving a tip. Like we, we have this built-in way of expressing gratitude through generosity. And that's a connection we see in the Bible that we can express our gratitude to God by being people who are generous, that as the church, as followers of Jesus, this is how we should be known, grateful. And out of our gratitude to God for what he's done for us through Jesus, we are, we are generous, generous people. Uh, in our last series, we talked a little bit about how the church is the bride of Christ. And I love that metaphor, really. It's one of the reasons why I love to, like, to serve at a church. Because I believe that by serving at a church, by giving to a church, by blessing a church, I'm serving, giving, blessing the bride of Christ. And so if I, if I am grateful to Jesus for what he's done, then one of the most tangible ways for me to express that gratitude is by being generous with his bride and my time and my money and my love. Um, a few years ago, I got a phone call from a guy I didn't know very well, uh, he was a ministry leader from out of town, and he just said, hey, Dave Stone really helped me out, he said. I, I had this conference, and I needed somebody to speak, and he came in and filled in, did an incredible job, and I just was trying to find a way to express my gratitude to him. And he said, I was wanting to get him a, a nice gift card somewhere as a way to say thank you, and this guy was wanting me to tell him where to get a gift card for Dave. And, and he had some good ideas. He said, well, I was thinking about, you know, getting him a gift card at a golf shop, or I was thinking about getting him a gift card at a nice steakhouse. And I said, hey, those are good ideas. But if you're really wanting to express your gratitude to Dave, the best way I think you can do that is by being generous with Beth. Like if, if you really want him to know how much you appreciate him, do something generous for his wife 
I get her a, a gift card at a furniture store. I was trying to help him out a little bit. Get him a, get, get him a gift card. At furniture. If you get her that, that will express to him gratitude. Like the best way I know to say thank you to him is to be generous with his bride. Right? And I believe that there's this kind of dynamic for us when we, as followers of Jesus, have been forgiven, we have been loved by God, we've received this grace and forgiveness, and we are overwhelmed by his generosity towards us, and we can express that generosity through giving to his bride. So generosity is a test, it's a, it's a test of gratitude. And in fact, I think we could say this very strongly, that generosity and gratitude have a symbiotic relationship. You really don't have one without the other. And so you show me someone who is generous and I'll show you someone who's grateful. And you show me someone who's really grateful, I don't even have to ask, I'll show you someone who's really generous. And by the way, the opposite's true. You show me someone who is entitled and always complaining and I'll show you someone who doesn't give very much. And you show me someone who doesn't really give and I'll show you someone who's probably entitled and always complaining. Like generosity and gratitude are symbiotic. They they go together. Where there's one, you'll find the other. And we see this connection in scripture, but we also see it in science. I, I read an article this week called Generosity and the Neuroscience of Gratitude. It was a secular publication, but it was just citing different studies that show how generosity and gratitude go hand in hand, both on a psychological, but also on a neurobiological level. Dr. Judith Moskowitz from Northwestern University did this study, and she concludes that our brains create a gratitude-generosity loop. That when we're grateful, it prepares us to be generous. And when we're generous, it teaches us to be grateful. Like you just, you just don't have one without the other. Gratitude and generosity go together. And so the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, here's God's will for you. Like for anyone who's ever wanted to know, God, what's your will for my life? Here it is. Be joyful always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. Be grateful in any and every circumstance. And when we do that, it just, it changes so much of how we see the world, it changes us. Wall Street Journal summarizes some of the research on gratitude. It says adults who frequently and are intentionally grateful have more energy, more optimism, more social connections, more happiness than those who are not. According to some of these studies conducted over the past decade, People who are intentionally grateful are less likely to be depressed, envious, or greedy. They earn more money, sleep more soundly, exercise more regularly, age more slowly, and give more generously. That connection is so strong, I think you could preach a sermon on generosity and really just talk about gratitude. Because in the end, as we grow in gratitude, we become generous. So just a few practical ways that we can do this. How do we grow in gratitude? Well, one, I think as as followers of Jesus, we worship God with a grateful heart, with a spirit of thanksgiving. We're intentional with that. Meaning that in the last few minutes, as we worshiped and we sang about the goodness of God, what's the posture of your heart? Is it a, a thankful heart where you're worshiping with this spirit of recognizing God's goodness and kindness in your life? Like, is that where your focus is? When we worship with this posture of thanksgiving, it teaches us to grow in gratitude. 
Second thing I would challenge you to do to grow in gratitude is to express gratitude for three specific things every morning. I would challenge you to do this for the next week. Just every day, write down three things that you are specifically grateful for. You can even do it on your phone, just three things. There's some research about how important specificity is in this exercise. Sean Aker, he's a psychologist, uh, teaches at Harvard. He, he cites this study where people were intentionally grateful for just five minutes a day, but he said the distinction, what made the difference in their gratitude having long-lasting effect was how concrete and, their, and specific their gratitudes were. Meaning that it's not enough just to say, well, I'm really grateful, I'm really grateful for my wife. Like, that's a good thing to be grateful for, but what's a specific gratitude? Like, I'm thankful that when I, I came home yesterday, my wife greeted me with a hug and told me she loved me. Like, it's something specific. Or, or this morning, when I woke up and I step outside and I look into the sky and I see this full moon shining down. I thank God for the full moon and I thank God for his sovereign power in my life. Like it's the specificity that teaches us to be grateful. So take a few minutes every morning, write down three things you are specifically grateful for. And, and thirdly, I would say to disrupt complaining and criticism with a gratitude observation. And this is pro-level gratitude, right? This is where you can be in the midst of something that you don't like, something you would normally complain about. You can be in the middle of complaining and criticizing and you, you, you come up with this gratitude observation. You're able to be great, grateful in the middle of something. That's, that's what First Thessalonians says to do, but that's hard to do. I had the opportunity to do it. Just yesterday, is that the U of L? UK game, having a great time. I was sitting there with my son and my two sons-in-law. Beautiful day, so much to be grateful for. And then, not, not so much, especially because I'm sitting next to my son and one of my sons-in-law who's a big, both big UK fans and yeah. See, this is the problem we have. This is the problem we have. You make it hard. <laughs> Didn't know my son was in this service. <laughs> but in the midst of that, saying, okay, I could complain about some things. I could be critical of some things. I'm gonna disrupt my complaining and my criticism with the gratitude observation. Like I, I didn't quite get there, but that's what I was working on. Like I understood that's what I want to become. That's how I want to, to see things. And, and so you disrupt complaining and criticism with a gratitude observation. So Luke chapter 12, I, I wanna spend a few minutes talking through this parable that Jesus teaches that connects for us gratitude and generosity. Jesus in this chapter is teaching a crowd of, of thousands of people. And, and there's someone in the crowd who disrupts his teaching. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine if he was a UK fan or not. He probably was. <laughs> Someone in the crowd who disrupts his teaching. Verse 13 says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So Jesus is teaching in the section about eternity and this guy 
kind of interrupts him and says, tell my brother to split the inheritance with me, probably the younger brother in this situation, because according to the Levitical law, the older brother would get two thirds of the inheritance. And, and so he says, would you, Jesus, would you just tell him? And it's not so much, listen, it's not so much that he approaches Jesus with this honest question about money. It's rather he comes to Jesus and he wants Jesus to back up what he thinks about money, which I think is often our approach to such things. Like, okay, how can I get Jesus to agree with me on this? And Jesus uses it as a teachable moment. Verse 16, he tells a parable to the whole crowd. It says, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Already rich, already has more than enough. Now he's got more, even more. What should I do with all my extra we look at his life, and it seems like this is what we would want. It seems like this is what we're striving towards. Not just to have enough, but to have more than enough. And when we have more than enough, we ask ourselves, what should I do with all my extra? What should I do? Nice problem to have. Verse 18, then he said to himself, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And for most of us in the Western world, we look at this and we were like, well, yeah, that seems right. I mean, isn't that what we're striving for, is to work hard, to make a little bit of money, to get ahead, to save quite a bit and be able to retire and just take life easy and do what we want to. And that feels like the dream. It feels like the goal. It doesn't seem like there's anything wrong here. It seems normal, kind of normalized this. And we wouldn't say barns, but we have our own um, ways of measuring a portfolio. I want you, though, to notice some pronouns that, gets, that get used here. Nine times in two verses, he refers to himself. And he says, my crops and my barns and my grains and my goods, it's all mine. And what it shows us here is that this guy has some confusion over ownership. Like he thinks it's his. And I would say at the foundation of most of our money problems is this confusion of who it actually belongs to. Is it mine or is it God's? The question, it might seem like the question is, God, what do you want me to do with my money? That's not the question. The question is, God, what do you want me to do with your money? Theologically, it all belongs to God. It's all his and he's entrusting it to us for a short amount of time. So that's the question. God, what do you want to me to do with yours. Our tendency is to say, my crops, my barns, my income, my savings, my car, my house. But Psalm 24 verse one says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And giving teaches me, it reminds me that all I have belongs to God. Giving sets my heart right on the issue of ownership, which teaches me to be grateful. If all I have is God's, then my gratitude to him is gonna be a much more natural, much more obvious. Now, not long ago, we were making a pretty long road trip as a family, and I pulled into this McDonald's St. Louis area for a bathroom break. I was already frustrated that we were making a bathroom break. I, I tried to control these things by withholding water and, and using shame. But here we are, right? Like bathroom break. And, and I'm not going in to use the restroom as a way to make a point of just how unnecessary it is. And, and I, I, I'm a little distracted when I hear this knock on the window of the car. I look out 
and I see a man who I assumed was, was homeless and he asked if I could spare some money for some shoes and I look down and I can see, I can see that he's uh, barefoot and I, I didn't have cash on me you know, to give him money for shoes, but almost immediately I sense that I wonder if God wants me to give this man my shoes. But I didn't wanna give him my shoes. I like my shoes. Besides, my wife had just recently bought me this pair of new on-cloud tennis shoes and I, I didn't wanna give him, I didn't wanna give him away. And so I quickly come up with this deal with God. I'm like, okay, God, I'm not saying this out loud. I'm just thinking in my head, I'll see if he happens to wear my size. And if he wears my size, then I will take that as a sign from you that I'll, you know, I'll give him my shoes. But what are the odds, right? And so I say to this guy, I'm like, what size shoe do you wear? I'm like, please don't say 12. Please don't say 12. And he says 12. And I immediately resist it. I, I'm like, really? I he doesn't seem that tall to me. I look down at his feet. I'm like, those, uh, this is true. I'm like, those look like size 10s to me, buddy. And he said, no, I wear a size 12. And I'm like, I feel like you're a size 10, but you're just saying you're a size 12. I'm arguing with this sweet homeless man about the size of his feet. And so if you are in the St. Louis area and you see a man wearing a pair of tennis shoes that are clearly two sizes too large for him, that's the guy, that's my guy. I needed to be reminded that just because they're on my feet doesn't mean they belong to me. Just because I'm wearing, wearing it doesn't mean it's mine. Just because I live in it doesn't mean that I own it. Just because it's titled in my name doesn't, doesn't mean it's mine. It all belongs to God. And when I understand that, I, everything else just kind of falls into place. And so sometimes we just have to be reminded and, and giving does this for us, it's painful, but it, it teaches us that it all belongs to God. I thought about ending this message with this symbolic challenge of you to, for you to leave your shoes here at the end of this service. Oh, you're laughing, but as an expression that it all belongs to God. I ran the idea by my wife which I, I do because she'll think practically. She's like, well, what are you gonna do with 30,000 pairs of shoes? Like, that's fair, that's a fair question. I don't, I don't know exactly how we would responsibly distribute 30,000 pairs of shoes to people who need them. She, some of you can take a deep breath. Like she was very practical about all of it. But I, I have to tell you that I loved at the end of the last service saying, what's that on the steps? And just seeing one, two, three, four, five, six pairs of shoes. A pair of boots. Nice boots, but not size 12. <laughs> there was a note on them. And the guy who wrote the note just said, hey, for me, this was important. Just a symbolic way of saying, okay, I need to be reminded that it all belongs to God, even my favorite pair of boots and and giving teaches our heart. It aligns our heart with this reality that all we have is from him. And if all we have is from him, then, oh, we are so grateful. And our focus becomes not on what we don't have, but what we've been blessed with. Let me give you a few ways you know you have some confusion over the ownership issue. Number one, you're constantly anxious about money and stuff. If in your mind it belongs to you, then you're gonna be more anxious, you're gonna be more stressed out. 
if you recognize that it all belongs to God, then it teaches you to be responsible. Like it still teaches you to take the, the foundations class and, and learn more about financial management and things like that. But it doesn't leave you overwhelmed when things don't go your way because it's not yours. Number two, you are your primary financial consultant. <laughs> like that's one of the ways you know that you're confused on this ownership issue because you're, you're your primary financial consultant, meaning that when it comes to money decisions, you mostly rely on what you think and what you say and what you believe. Whereas if you understand that it belongs to God, it's more about his purpose for it, his intention for it. But let's imagine that I'm getting ready to go on a trip and I don't really have time to, to say goodbye to my wife. She's busy and I'm busy and I have my son take me to the airport to, to drop me off. And I just think to myself, I, I really didn't do a good job of, of uh, saying goodbye to my wife. So I'm, I'm gonna do something thoughtful for her. And I, I, I feel in my pocket that I've got a, a little money. I pull out, it's a hundred dollar bill. And I say to my son, I'm like, hey, will you do me a favor? Will you just do something thoughtful for your mom? Maybe on the way home, get her a candle, get her some flowers, just, just let her know I'm thinking of her. And, and you know, buddy, I know you could use the money. You, you, you can, whatever you don't spend on her, you can use the rest for college and gas and all this stuff. And he's like, yeah, that sounds good. But what, what's the amount, dad? Like how, how much do I need to spend on mom? And I said, it's, just re it's really more just the gesture. You know what? 10 bucks, get her a candle, that's great. Just do something that lets her know I was thinking of her. And so I come back and let's imagine that he responds in one of three ways. One, he does exactly what I asked. Spends 10 bucks, does something nice for my bride, pockets the rest of it. Or another way he could respond is to say, you know, I'm sure my dad will understand. He gave me a hundred bucks. I actually have this thing over here that I'm wanting to buy that's exactly a hundred dollars. I mean, what are the odds? I'm not gonna worry about taking care of what he asked me to do with it. I'm just gonna spend it on myself. Um, or let's just say he went over and beyond. So he says, I'm gonna go all out here. I'm gonna take 25%, I'm gonna take $25 and I'm gonna do something nice as he asked me to do. When I come back and we're in the situation again sometime, how I entrust him is really dependent on how he stewarded what I asked him to do the last time, right? Like if he did exactly what I asked him to do, I'd do it again. I'd say, hey, I'm glad this worked out for you. I appreciate your thoughtfulness. And again, you do something for your mom, 10 bucks, and you can put the rest of it towards your expenses. It's okay. If he didn't do anything, then I'd be like, mm, we won't do that again. If he did 25%, the odds are much higher that the next time I might say, hey, here's a, actually, here's 120 bucks. I appreciate you going above and beyond last time to make sure what I was wanting to do with it happened. So go, here's 120 bucks. I trust you. Do something again nice for your mom to make sure that she knows I'm thinking of her. Do you see how this works? Like his, his focus isn't really at all on what he wants to do with it. His focus is on what I want him to do with it because it's my money. I'm just filtering that through him. And if he does that well, then he's, he's gonna be blessed because of it. Like his, his needs are getting taken care of along the way. And so the question is, God, what do you want me to do with your money? One other thing I would say here is, you know you have some confusion over ownership if you think of giving as an obligation rather than a privilege. In 2 Corinthians, there's this uh, passage where Paul is 
giving some encouragement to a church in Macedonia, in the region of Macedonia that was pure, or, or poor rather. They just didn't have much. And so he speaks of them as an example of generosity. And I, I just love what he says here in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of giving. That's the context of this verse. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. This church that didn't have a lot came to Paul and said, please let us be a part of what God is doing. Please. Just because we don't have a lot, please don't leave us out of this. Like we wanna be a part of what God's doing in Corinth and what God's doing in Jerusalem. Please give us the privilege of being a part of this. Let us in on this. And I love that reframing. Like what if we looked at giving that way, not as an obligation, but as a privilege. Think about how different even the dynamic here would be. Because the way I would talk to you about giving would be different than what sometimes feels um, instinctive. Well, uh, yeah, I know this is awkward. I know this is a hard subject. And I, you know, instead it's a privilege. Instead, it's, I've got this opportunity for you. It's an incredible opportunity that we can be a part of. And how different you would hear it if you received it as a privilege and not as an obligation. I was at this church one time preaching a few years back, sitting on the front row, getting ready to preach. And they were going through their worship service. And the time came in the service where they said, um, we're gonna take up an offering. And when they said, we're gonna take up an offering, the thousands of people, the entire room just erupted in applause. Everybody starts cheering. And I was so caught off guard that it literally scared me. Like usually when the church says, hey, it's time to take up an offering, it's crickets. Like no, nobody's cheering and applauding for that. Like there's maybe a soft apology. There's this, hey, if you're visiting with us, we, this isn't for you. Like these disclaimers. But at this church, they saw it as a privilege. And so when they said it's time to take up an offering, everybody just starts cheering and clapping. And that makes the most sense when we understand the privilege of giving as it's talked about in scripture. Well, this man in our story, it never seems to occur to him that God has blessed him for anything other than his own pleasure and happiness. And so his conclusion is, well, here's the right thing to do. I'll just build bigger barns. I'll just build a bigger house. I'll just save even more money. And in verse 19, this is from the message paraphrase. I'll say to myself, self, you've done well. You've got it made and can now retire, take it easy and have the time of your life. Don't normalize that. Don't let that be God's plan, purpose for what he's entrusted to you. We might look at this man and think, must be nice, finally made it. But what does God think? That's the question. What does um, this say about the test? Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be, Jesus concludes, with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. I don't think the problem with this man is that he had a lot I don't think the problem was the size of his account. I think the problem was that he had a zero balance in his eternal portfolio, like he wasn't thinking in terms of eternity. 
And what else do you call somebody but foolish when they're only here for a moment and they spend their life building up treasures on earth but give no thought to eternity? Jesus says, you're a fool. He's not calling names, he's just calling it like it is. Here's the guy who lived in the biggest house on the street and built the biggest barns in the county, but for all of his entrepreneurial achievements, for all of his ability to run cost-benefit analysis and cash flow projections, there's one scenario that he didn't prepare for, his death. The most predictable scenario of all. Wasn't ready for it. Jesus says, you're a fool. You're a fool, if that's what you're doing. You're a fool if you think that the purpose of this life is to just store up as much as you can for yourself. You're a fool if you think that the purpose of this life is just bigger and better and newer, nicer. You're a fool if you don't stop and ask yourself, what happens when I die? John Wesley said, I value all things only by the price they shall gain in eternity. And so this man comes to Jesus wanting Jesus to kind of take his side on this uh, money question. Jesus tells the story and then he concludes this way. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near, no moth destroys. Here it is. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a test. It's a test of trust, it's a test of affection, it's a test of gratitude. And so as a church, my prayer is that we would be known as people who are just so grateful. And because of our gratitude to God for what he's done for us through Jesus, we plead for the privilege of being generous, the privilege of of giving. I, I love as a church that we are debt free. That means every dollar that is given goes into directly into ministry, directly into the Great Commission. I, I love that as a church, we made a decision four or five years ago that frankly, I didn't know how would, it would be possible, but we said we're, we are going to go from 20 to 25% of making sure that every dollar that, that comes in, that 25% is gonna go back out. We're gonna focus that on outside missions and that meant that within a five-year period, we'd go from giving outside about $12 million to around $17 million. I love the heart of this church in that way. And it only, it only happens because of what Paul talks about in Corinthians, that there are just so many of you that see it this way. Like you understand it. You understand temporary and eternal, and you understand gratitude and generosity I was at the Nelson County campus last weekend. They just recently opened up and they're meeting in a high school right now while um, the renovations are being done on their, their permanent home there. And it's about, uh, about a 50 minute drive from this campus. And, and as I drove there, I just was so humbled by the reality that so many of you have given so that here's a community 45, 50 minutes away from where most of you live that has an opportunity to know Jesus and be a part of the mission. It's just, it's an incredible privilege.
Um, we don't take up an offering these days within our worship services. Maybe we should, and maybe we will again, because I do think it's an important part of worship. I think it's, it's an important part of gratitude and expressing worship to God. But one of the ways we're doing it right now is by um, putting this QR code right in front of you as a way to connect you to more of our mission, to more uh, answers to questions you might have. Like if you just pull out your phone and you get on your camera and you put it in front of that QR code and then tap on the screen, it, it'll connect you, um, you know, it'll connect you to all kinds of information. You can learn more about it. But we want this to be an act of worship, to be an expression of, of gratitude. Money is a test. And every time you get a paycheck, every time you look at your finances, Every time you make a purchase, it's a test. It's not a test of salvation, but it's a test of trust. It's a test of affection. It's a test of gratitude. So let me just end by asking you some questions. If money is a test, then here's some questions maybe, maybe on that test. Do I acknowledge that everything I have belongs to God? I am not the owner, I am the steward. You see that? Question number two, do I take time every day to observe specific things to be thankful for? Not a rhetorical question. Like, do you do that? Do you take time every day to just observe something specific that you have to be thankful for? Question number three, when is the last time I was overwhelmed with gratitude for God's forgiveness and the gift of eternal life? It should overwhelm us when we think of how he has forgiven us of our sins. Question number four, do I regularly express my thanksgiving to God in worship and prayer? Question five, am I giving in a way that reflects my gratitude? I say that I'm grateful, but does my giving reflect it? Question six, do I think of giving as an obligation or as a privilege? Question seven, am I planning on being generous later, but now's not a good time? Question eight, what does the tie the test say about my affection and gratitude? That was the test in scripture. The 10%, first 10%, where's it go? It tells the story. Question nine, am I always thinking about what's newer, bigger, and better? Am I motivated by comfort or by mission? And question 10, what does my heavenly portfolio look like? How am I specifically building treasures for myself in heaven? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your grace towards us. I pray that we would be overwhelmed by your generous expression of love through Jesus. And when I think about how my sins are forgiven, hmm, I couldn't possibly put a number on that. Whatever number got put on that, I would spend my whole life trying to pay it, and yet you give it freely because of Jesus. Cost him everything, cost him his life, but you, you give it to us freely through faith in him. And I pray, God, that that gratitude to Jesus for who he is and what he's done would just fill our hearts and be expressed through generosity. That we would express our, our gratitude to you by being generous people. I pray that would mark who we are. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. If today's message made you realize you need to take your next step with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us on any of our social media platforms throughout the week or visit our website at southeastchristian.org. And if you want to hear more content like this, you can check out our sermons podcast or our one at a time podcast. Both can be found everywhere. Podcasts are available. Have a great week.